it's one of the beautiful things that we have on this earth that provides sustenance to the, to our species. And I think we need to cultivate it. And I think we need to go back to it. We need to go back to what was natural, what was normal a thousand, 2000 years ago. And, and that is milk and dairy products. This is the real food, real people podcast. Dairy farmer, Dwayne Faber grew up in the same community as me, but we went to different schools. So I, I never knew him. He's got thousands and thousands of followers on Twitter, uh, hilarious tweets, uh, and, and a lot of people know him for that, as well as his dairy farming and his involvement in the farming community. Um, but I wanted to get to know him and what makes him tick. Why does he do what he does? And, and some of the things that he shares on podcasts and other things that he's been able to do because of the exposure of his, his Twitter following uh, have been pretty cool. So we had him here on the podcast, went to his farm in Skagit County, Washington. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and these are our continuing conversations to get to know the real people behind our food here in Washington State. So why do you do it? Why do I do it? Yeah, like you grow milk. I grow milk. I'm too dumb to do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love farming. I love the connection that farming allows to have to animals, to soil, and to people. And there's something human, there's something ethereal about providing food for people that uh, is, is satisfying in a way that not every industry has. So how much food do you produce for people? Would there be a, a way to even quantify that? Ooh, we could calculate it out. It would take a, it would, it would take, it would take a calculator. It would take a calculator. Yeah, my brain doesn't have one of those. Right, right. It, yeah. uh, well, if you do a cheese conversion, it would be about uh, uh, six to 7,000 pounds of cheese a day. So wow. we can do that. So divided by a five, five pound loaf. Uh, yeah, pretty, pretty substantial. So yeah, it's. That's, yeah, quantifying like that. I've never done that. But that's, that's a little crazy when you think about it. When you think about it, you're a person who produces food. And, and I think you've talked about this before. You know, like how many people are you actually feeding? Right. You know, in some of your social media posts. We're going to get into your social media habits that's eventually. Right. Love this. So, so just be forewarned. <laughs> but for, first, tell us about your farm. You bet. So I have a dairy farm in Skagit Valley. We milk about uh, 900 to 1,000 cows on that dairy there. And we have about 400 cows on a dairy in Astoria, Oregon, where we ship to Tillamook Cheese. And then the dairy in Washington, obviously, we ship to Dairy Gold. And Dairy Gold does a lot of fluid milk and sour creams. And then Tillamook is more known for the cheese, obviously. And they've kind of Diving into some other products like ice cream and sour, not sour cream, but cream cheese has been really popular. So, yeah, it's uh, it's fun to go to a grocery store and kind of see your products just sitting there in the store as people pick them up and, and use them. So it's pretty, pretty invigorating. What's your favorite dairy product? I was going to say it's cheesy to ask that, and then I realized that's a terrible <laughs> pun. So I, I won't say it's cheesy, but but it is. But I, I'm still going to put you on the spot. Absolutely. I think, I think it has to be cheese, right? I, I mean, there was some study that came out, like there's some correlation between cheese and drugs. Like the, the, <laughs> the, the reaction the human body has to eating cheese is actually some sort of euphoria and high that yeah. uh, in a small way that is achieved by so caffeine or yes. Burst of 
endorphins. Absolutely. Cheese. Get get our happy cheese. No wonder I love cheese so much. All is right with the world again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people say that about chocolate, too, but I'm not as much of a chocolate person. Right. I take cheese over chocolate. Ooh. I mean, to some people, that's blasphemy. But I I think I would as well. I think I would as well. Yeah. And cheese uh, was actually one of the first ways that they preserved milk, right? And you, historically, the human species and population expanded. On their stomachs, like the only mm. a lot of kids died, people died because they didn't have enough food. Well, the way that you go from being hunter gatherers is you have a herd of cows that follows you around to provide milk year round, and then you have too much milk. So the way to preserve that is to store it in the form of of cheese, and you can preserve those calories for a later date. And that was one of the ways they used to preserve milk, milk products, and grow populations. And and the dairy cow has a very important part in world history and and global population well well, milk and cheese as you're describing i mean that even played a role in like these wars of antiquity in some cases right Mm -hmm. like defining who was able to win or lose that's right that's right well and uh milk has also been attributed to growth like bone structure and allowing for Mm. uh, as you and i both know we come from holland holland is known for their love of dairy products they've actually birthed or started the frisian cow the holstein cow and they're known as being some of the tallest people in the world right and is it correlation or causation i i would beg that it is a, a, a direct result of the dairy industry and allowing that nutrition well the health of a society Mm -hmm. is largely governed by its food yep absolutely right makes you wonder what's going to happen with our society because we seem to be getting away from those real basic simple nutritious foods that you know Yep. A lot of things seem to happen to the things that we eat after they leave the farm. <laughs> no, exactly, right? And and we were actually discussing earlier, going back to how mankind, humankind, how they source their calories historically. And it doesn't look anything like the diet that we eat today. And I think at some point we're going to wake up and realize that, hey, this isn't healthy. We need to go back to what we did consume and used to consume and... Uh, I think that would be good for all of us to go back and reevaluate. Well, there's a trend out there, though, that milk would be on that list of what isn't healthy and that, you know, milk is cows producing for their young Mm -hmm. and humans shouldn't be drinking it Mm -hmm. because that's not, you know, what nature intended. Mm -hmm. What, What do you say to that? Uh, nature didn't intend for us to fly on airplanes and go to Hawaii once a year either. And here we are. Here we are. Um, I mean, and and to go and say that we're the only species that consumes milk—that's that's inaccurate. You give it, dogs love cow milk. Uh, cats love cow milk, right? And it's it's one of the beautiful things that we have on this earth that provides sustenance to the to our species. And I think we need to cultivate it. And I think we need to go back to it. We need to. Go back to what was natural, what was normal a thousand, two thousand years ago, and and that is milk and dairy products. Heck, a hundred years ago, right, right. <laughs> we've we've shifted again, right, and so no, it's it's interesting, and yeah, we'll see see if see what that change looks like, and if society does come around to that. Why do you think there is that narrative that you know drinking milk is bad, eating meat is bad, mm-hmm. all of these things that on one hand are I mean, the claim is that it's about making us healthier and better and more sustainable and all of that. But really, it's taking us away from the direction that mankind, mm-hmm. humankind was on for right. a long time. 
I mean, there is a narrative out there that animal agriculture is bad for the climate. Now, I would say that there's a symbiotic relationship and an ecosystem where cows can be a part of uh, this chain. Uh, for mm. me, a lot of our dairy manure is utilized to grow crops uh, of the organic crops, or gra- organic uh, Brussels sprouts, organic cauliflower, mm. and it allows these organic farmers to utilize the nutrients that are in dairy manure and not have to apply synthetic fertilizers. Uh, to their crops and and we're part of an ecosystem that is good for the soil it's good for the environment and it we, it gets people away from having to truck in the nutrients that they need in order to grow these organic crops and i think if people understood that they would mm-hmm. realize that milk and meat then is not as bad for the environment as people think that it is and ergo if if you do believe that cows are bad for the environment you are going to spend money to infiltrate studies you're going to change the food pyramid mm-hmm. you're going to push a narrative that well uh, these foods that you normally eat vegetables and meat are no longer healthy we're going to push more processed foods and that is going to be better for the environment and if you believe that humans are the virus and we need to yeah. eliminate humans, uh, that you don't care about the health of the human. You, right. Mother Earth is all and is everything. That's true. You can't really at the same time say humans are the problem, mm-hmm. but here's what everyone needs to do to be healthier. Like, wait a second. There's there's a disconnect there. That's right. No, exactly. If you believe humans are the problem, you're going to go out and and give advice that only benefits mother nature. Well, if that means eliminating foods that you deem as bad for mother nature and are also bad for humans, you've actually accomplished a double whammy. You've kind of expedited your process of reducing the human impact on the globe. And I think that's where a lot of that narrative comes from. And I don't want to sound too crazy town, um, but there there is that belief and there is that narrative out there being pushed by a lot of groups. Well, and you touched on something a minute ago that, that I always think about, but it's because I grew up around this and I'm continuing to be more and more fascinated about it. I mean, it's related to soil health, but it's this whole cycle of nutrients. And like you said, if you're going to grow veggies, which a lot of people hold up veggies, oh, that's healthy. Oh, that's better for the environment. I'd say that's debatable when you look at the real facts and the real impacts of how they're grown or whatever. But regardless, it requires nutrients to grow those. So where are they going to come from? Animal manure or synthetic fertilizer? Those are your kind of two big options. I I read an article recently about like vegan farming where they didn't want to have any animal products involved because I guess the narrative is that's exploitation to use animals manure to grow vegetables. So what's the option there then? Mm -hmm. Synthetic fertilizer, which is made out of oil, Mm -hmm. fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't, I don't think they realize that's the choice. There is no other middle road there of like, where else is your nutrient going to come from? No, no, exactly right. And there is a war going on right now on fertilizer. I mean, we're seeing it in Holland in particular, where they're going and saying, you're not allowed to apply any more fertilizers to the soil because the uh, nitrogen levels are too high. Mm. Well, they're they're a, a vast food producing nation. Yeah. And they're being forced now to reduce their food output, which is mm. going to have a, an impact on our global food supply. And it's possible in one or two years that we are in a calorie deficit world. Mm. And for the people at the top, that doesn't make a difference in their life. Mm-hmm. It's the people at the bottom that can't afford to feed themselves and rely on the excesses of mm. 
these other countries in order to survive and feed their people. And we are going to see a lot of turmoil. I mean, the Arab Spring was a result of uh, wheat prices going way too high. And, and governments were overthrown. And, and that's just starting to happen now and will continue to happen as you have food that is just, it, it's untenable for people on the bottom rungs of society. And we're, we're heading for a pretty scary time. And mm. it's hard to look at some of the decisions being made and think that there is not a cohesive thought or group behind it because a lot of these narratives made in the vein of we're saving the climate uh, are going to starve and kill people Mm. and the next one or two years will be very telling that's scary that's a scary prediction yeah it i i i hope i'm wrong but we're starting to uh, sri lanka uh they're starting to people in the streets right we're also seeing i mean we got a scary situation in europe europe now Mm -hmm. are they going to be able to afford to heat their homes they're running out of gas and oil right and you have Germany, which was completely altruistic. We're going to switch to windmills and we're going to get rid of nuclear. And yeah. all of a sudden now people are chopping firewood and, and buying wood-burning stoves because they don't want to die of cold in the winter. And it's one thing to... I hear it gets cold in Germany in the winter. <laughs> it does. <laughs> That's why they have such a good bobsled team. Yeah. The right, and so there, we're heading into some pretty uncharted territories, and it'll be interesting to see where it all goes. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot, you know, a lot of talk about oh, fossil fuels and climate change, mm-hmm. energy, and a lot of these things that you're mentioning. And I think the part that's just kind of coming into view that it's mixed up in all of this is food. Yes. Food is a part of this whole equation as well. Like food, yep. shelter. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I mean, the lifeblood for food is fertilizer. You know, you cannot grow crops in soil that has been depleted of all of its resources. Fertilizer, either organic manure fertilizer or synthetic petroleum-based fertilizer. Yeah, that's right. And that is the lifeblood. And any attacks on that or increased cost of that, which what we're seeing now currently is the prices of fertilizer have just exploded. And and that has to be passed on to the consumer. And it's still six to eight months away for the consumer to feel the full impact of that as you go through these growing cycles. Um, but no, food food insecurity is going to become more and more of a conversation. Back to this nutrient cycle, I just had this kind of light bulb realization. I mean, with cows, mm-hmm. cows eat grass that have nutrients in them. They produce food with that that people eat, and they produce manure. The manure, the nutrients in that manure then go back into the soil. They feed the soil. The soil feeds the crop, which feeds the cow, and that's it goes around and around. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's a closed loop, except for those nutrients that leave in the food that they produce that we consume. Yeah. It's humans that don't have a closed loop at all. Yeah. Because honestly, you know, <laughs> right? we eat stuff, yeah. it goes out of the system. Where does it go? Right. By and large, I mean, it's very rare for that to go back. And I don't want to get into the like biosolids debate mm-hmm. or anything, but I, I really think it should be thought about talked about i mean most of it goes into a river Mm -hmm. and or directly into the ocean or you know the river takes it to the ocean and that's where all those nutrients end up Mm -hmm. from the human populations or put into the ground somewhere right yeah so who's yeah what's really more sustainable right and i think that's also a dangerous road to go down because if you come to the realization that humans don't contribute anything then your value of human life goes down 
And to me, that's a dangerous road to go down too. And yeah. and to me, humans, yeah, we were created and we are a part of a global good that is contributing to this society and this world and there's human yeah. capital. Um, but you, you talk about, you know, manure and sewage going out. There was just an article that broke in San Francisco. They're getting massive algae blooms in the San Francisco Bay. Yep. And it's a result of their sewage treatment plant not doing a good enough job. And the cost to rebuild and bring it up to specs and standards would be $14 billion. And they know it's an ongoing problem, and they're just kind of sweeping it under the rug and ignoring it. And and that is something that in the dairy community, if we were knowingly pumping that type of manure into a waterway where there would be algae hmm. blooms, we would be out of business. We'd be sued out of business. We'd be taken out. You know, and yet because it is all of us, then we ignore it and it's no longer a problem. And, and yeah. that to me, that's incredibly frustrating. Well, and that's I appreciate what you brought up about humanity, not to say that, oh, humanity's bad and play into this worldview that says humanity is the blight. They're the problem. I don't even want to get into that because that's heavy duty stuff. But just, you know, with a knee jerk of, oh, it must be, you know, cows that are the problem. Well, maybe we should take a closer look at what we're contributing as humans mm -hmm. through the systems that we just kind of take for granted. They're transparent to us. Again, sewage treatment. How much, how, how often do people think about the nutrients that they consumed and then right. left their body? Let's not get too right. <laughs> graphic about it. But mm -hmm. that, uh, That's right. And, and to me, the dairy cow is unique and special, right? And the beef cow, certainly, I think it's justified, but the dairy cow provides milk for 80% of its life, and at the very end of its life, it provides meat into the system, mm. right? And when you do a scorecard of what is the carbon footprint of each animal, to me, the dairy cow provides the lowest carbon footprint because you have so much output continually mm. every day from the dairy cow where it's providing nutrients for humanity. And to me, it's one of the most efficient carbon converters. Um, mm. so yeah, I'm obviously pro pro dairy cow, but that's, uh, yeah, yeah that's, I'm excited about it. Well, so. you, this must be what you think about when you're out in the field or in the barn. Certainly. Like, time to process all these big heady ideas. That's right. Yeah. Solve all the world's problems and it starts and ends with a dairy cow. Just a quick time out here on the Real Food, Real People podcast to thank our sponsors, Dairy Farmers of Washington, for one, supporting what we do here and sharing stories of dairy farmers like Duane and so many others that are focused on sustainability, health and nutrition of the, the quality dairy products that they produce right here in Washington State. Um, they're known worldwide uh, and you can find out so much more about that at wadairy.org. A ton of great resources for you to see there. Again, Dairy Farmers of Washington, thanks to them for uh, supporting the podcast. Also, Mana Insurance Group, um, helping plan, uh, uh, help you come up with a plan to protect your financial future, I guess is how I should say. It. That's what it's really about is making sure that you aren't financially devastated by the unknown in the future um, and that you aren't just left picking up the pieces. And I think some people think about insurance that way. They don't think about it that way. They want to be proactive rather than reactive. Check them out online, manainsurancegroup.com. It's a firm that was started by a high school classmate of mine, a guy I really trust and, and think very highly of. 
as well as many people on his team. He's got a great team, and they operate now here in Washington, as well as in California and Arizona. Also, Washington Red Raspberries uh, sponsoring the podcast this season again, and we really appreciate them. Of course, I grew up around Washington Red Raspberries. My dad was on the board of Washington Red Raspberries for a long time, and they continue to do a great job of producing the best red raspberries, I believe, and you know, I'm biased for a variety of reasons, the best anywhere in the world. Um, they call themselves America's Red Raspberries, um, and you can check them out, Red Raz, uh, online, redraz.org. Check it out, Washington Red Raspberries. Thanks to them for supporting these conversations here on the Real Food, Real People podcast. Now back to the Skagit Valley and our conversation with Dwayne Faber. Well, what do you do on the farm? You get your hands dirty much? Yeah. A little are, you, are you the head honcho that's, you know. Right. Well, every time I touch a piece of equipment, it dies. So <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not trusted with any of that. But um, I thought I saw you do a live on, I want to say it was back in this Periscope days, ooh. where you were out pumping manure, live streaming on the internet. That, that, that could be correct. I, I get put on a tractor that's going about two miles an hour, and that's all I'm allowed to drive. So Spreading need, those good nutrients. That's out. right. We're spreading nutrients out. We're part of that, uh, that cycle, just upcycling nutrients. And No, so I'll do some of that, but it's a lot of putting out fires. Um, I do have to go back and forth between Washington and the dairy in Oregon. I've got great mm -hmm. managers down in Oregon. They do a good job. Um, but, yeah, with a dairy farm, there's always something going wrong. I mean, mm -hmm. you deal with cows, machinery, and people. Uh, you're bound to have a problem just about every day. And uh, we, we see all, all tenants of that. So, no, there's always something to, something to do and fill in. I still milk cows when I have to and feed cows when I have to and just try and keep the, the ball rolling on all of it. So, so the, the stereotype is that dairy farmers in particular, and I just know this because I grew up in the dairy community, that is that either a dairy farmer is a crop guy or a cow guy. Ooh, yes. You know, the, 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 stereotypically, they're wired in a way where they're interested in the crops and they're not so much into caring for the animals yes. or vice versa. Which are you? I would definitely, I'd be on the cow side. There's yeah. something about seeing like a correctly formed cow that has a nice udder that's going to produce a lot of milk that just, I mean, that, that's what gets me excited. That's what gets me up in the morning. Uh, seeing a nice cow uh, gets me excited and, and the crop side, not as much. So you so. like working with animals? I do. Yeah. They, uh, they try and kill you at times, but <laughs> <laughs> we, we better not uh, anthropomorphize animals too right, much because right. they, they still, uh, they still do have a wild nature to them. But no, they, I do love working with cows. I love, uh, yeah, I love that aspect of the business, certainly. Yeah. And see, that's the part that, you know, I'm not a dairy farmer, but if I were, that would be my least favorite part. You'd be the tractor guy. Yeah. yeah. They're, you know, cows are unpredictable. Right. You know, they, they have a mind of their own. Well, they do. They want to do various things, and it's not always what I would want to be doing. Right. That just upsets me. I want plants. They stay in one spot. Yes. Until you come and harvest them. Right. Well, I've got a wife and three daughters, so I'm used to <laughs> instability. Oh, uh, well, I'm with you in the three daughters. Club, you are. So, oh, yeah. congratulations. Yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So yeah. I, I know how that goes. That, Granted, we don't have a dairy farm to keep them busy all the time, but you you've know. got a tractor you can put them on. And yeah. And the flower farm and the cats oh. and the dogs. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Or ship them down to grandpa's place. Okay. You know. That'll work. Yeah. But you grew up in the same area as me, though, not Skanji County where you're at right now. 
That's right. Grew up in the Sumas area and then up to Everson. Uh, lived there from probably 10 to 18, but 0 to 10, we were in the Sumas, uh, Sumas area there. Dairy farming the whole time. Yeah, with my parents. Yep, you bet. Yep. How many generations back in the Faber blood yeah. does the, the farming go? So my dad was uh, was the first one. He was the, really? the patriarch. Yeah, he started it, grew up. Uh, grandparents immigrated, and grandpa worked at a uh, Keeler Brass. It was a car manufacturing mm. place, I believe, in Detroit. Wow. And then they moved out here, and dad started out on his own. Um, grandparents on the, my mom's side, Braden Hoff, uh, he was a dairy farmer in British Columbia, Canada, mm. and uh, then all of that family farms as well and dairies as well. But yeah, no, he was the first one. I'm the second, and we'll see see where it goes. What stories does he tell? What was that like being the first one in the family? Right. That, to me, that'd be pretty intimidating. Yes. Because it's like you don't have like, hey, dad, how do you do this? Or you didn't grow up necessarily doing it day to day, so you just have some of these kind of natural, you know, basic knowledge of how stuff works. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was a whole leap of faith, right? And going into an industry that, yeah, he didn't know outside of being a young man working for a neighboring farmer and Mm -hmm. deciding that he liked it and wanted to do that. And so, no, he, yeah, it was a lot, a big leap of faith to, to, to make that jump. And no, it's, it's worked out well. He's, uh, he's survived. It's been a tough industry. Um, but he's gotten through it. He's been able to provide for his kids and his wife and, and then seeing it continue on with, with myself. And so, yeah. no, there's joy in that. There's, uh, there's pleasure in seeing your, and I, and I think he would say too, just seeing, seeing your kids doing well and excelling in life. And for him as a Christian, yeah, seeing them in their faith and, and mm-hmm. walking with the Lord, that's his greatest joy. And I think farming allowed him to do that. It, uh, it provided for that lifestyle, for that family. And it was never about, you know, getting the beach house and, you know, the trips to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was all survival. And, yeah, how many and, times did you go to Hawaii growing up? We, we didn't. We didn't go to <laughs> yeah, Hawaii. Same no. Zero. <laughs> right. Or Disneyland. Didn't go there until I was an adult. And I'm right. Like, wow. So this is what people have been yeah. talking about. <laughs> this is how you live. This is how you live. <laughs> Unreal. Right. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. So, no, he, uh, yeah, it, farming has been great for us. It's been a great uh, career path. It's also, like I said, it, it provides that, uh, that humbling experience where you can do everything right and it still go wrong. And so it keeps you centered. It keeps you grounded. And then I think it also gives you the satisfaction of a, a job well done after a hard day's worth of, worth of work, right? And that is satisfying. And I think you learn to take joy and pleasure in the small things. And when things do go well and do go right, uh, that's what provides the job satisfaction and life satisfaction. What were the hardest times? Ooh. You said it wasn't w- without struggle. Right, right. I think the biggest thing is financial, right? You go through, there's there's periods in time in dairy farming where the bills are greater than the milk check, right? And the market doesn't care if you make money or not. You know, we get a price for our milk at the end of the month and Sometimes we spent more money to make that milk than, than what the milk check allowed us to, 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 to go with. And that, that has been probably the biggest stress or struggle. Um, you know, we see environmental challenges where we're told, hey, you're doing a terrible job and you're bad for the climate. And it's, that's not the narrative that I believe in my heart. Um, 
And and the people side can still be frustrating. You work with people, and people people are ugly business, right? Mm. Uh, being an employer wouldn't yeah. be so bad if it wasn't for the people. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, you just deal with the uh, the the oscillations of, of the humankind. And and uh, to me, being an employer is like um, high school, but with money. You deal with all of the same things. <laughs> Drama. <laughs> that's right. It does. Yeah. You know, and yet then there's things where, you know, you have an employee that struggles. You know, we had an employee that uh, had uh, cancer and mm. yeah, we, you know, we go above and beyond. We help them out. You know, you help them out and you give them a paycheck for, for a year and a half while they're getting cancer treatments, you know, that mm. kind of stuff where you can spread that around and you can help someone um, with the things that you've been given and you've been blessed with. And that provides the joy, right? When you can help those around you. And um, well, farming tends to be more of like a family endeavor, whether it, it is actual blood family or people that work with you who are not related at all, or but are, they're on your team. That's right. And that's why I hear farmers say so many times, it's like, the crew, the our yep. workers, they're like family. We just do this together, and our you know our kids, yep. our parents, oh yeah, our employees. We're all working together to make this whole thing happen. Yeah, and I mean, I think camaraderie comes about when you go through struggle. I mean, it was no yeah. different than when when I was on the fire department, right? And when you mm -hmm. go th through something traumatic, as a firefighter, you build a bond with somebody that you wouldn't ever have outside of that, right? And people experience that being in the military. They experience yeah. that. Uh, I mean, probably in any industry where you have real struggle and you have enemies, or you know, there's something cohesive about standing shoulder to shoulder to beside somebody else and working hard to get it done. Or I mean whether it's an employee and you working hard to pull a calf out that's too mm. big for the mother and then seeing a, a live baby calf, right? That provides joy. That provides a bond between you and your employee that, yeah. you know, you can't get, you know, just rubber stamping a piece of paper and moving it yeah. to the next guy. Clock and in, clock out. I made my widgets for the day. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, so there, those joys, right? Those are the wins that I think uh, invigorate a lot of farmers through the hard times. Yeah. What well, thinking back, like when you were a kid, what, what were the hard times like? What, what was the, what was the Ooh. toughest? What, and what was going on? And what were you yes. thinking at that time? The crazy thing as a kid was we did all the milkings ourselves, And so every afternoon we would have to leave whatever, wherever we were at at two o'clock PM to go back and milk the cows. And we would have to leave the birthday party. We would have to leave the, uh, the lake outing with friends and family. We'd have to leave yeah. And it, it instilled in me, like, at the time I was frustrated with it. I didn't, I, I was angry that we had to always be home milking the cows, t tending the cows, taking care of the cows. And, and yet I think those were the formative years that teaches you a work ethic. And it teaches you that when there's an animal to be cared for, you go and you take care of it. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I don't think can be taught in school. It's just something that you have to live through an experience and I've structured my life now so that I can be free at two o'clock, but I'm grateful for those struggles where through that childhood, I thought that that was struggle when it really wasn't. Um, and yet outside of that, I think kids, kids are resilient. I mean, kids don't need the fancy toys to be happy. I mean, we had so much joy in swimming in the creek and, <laughs> you know, jumping out of hay mouths and, we didn't have an Xbox. We didn't have, you know, the trip to Hawaii. And, and yet we didn't know we were lacking a thing. We, we were completely content. And, and I think kids especially don't know what they don't know. And, they, and quite frankly, I think their threshold for what happiness is 
mm-hmm. is a lot lower than what parents think it needs to be um, outside of, to me, time and input of parents and, and living yeah. in a loving home. And, but outside of that, uh, kids, kids can find entertainment just about anywhere. What was that like growing up then and becoming your own farmer, mm-hmm. kind of stepping out from under your dad's wing? Yep. Um, yeah, it was scary. Uh, it was, it was the most scary on that first day when you start, right? You jump out and you just went and bought a hundred cows and you think, you know, somebody says, oh, they, you way overpaid for them. You know, you got screwed on that. It, uh, that, that right away. Thanks it, naysayers. It's yeah. too late now. Right. <laughs> I got to do this. Right. We're kind of committed. <laughs> exactly right. So that, that was probably the, the biggest part was the starting up phase where you're like, gosh, what are we getting into? What, where is this thing going to go? And, um, and then it ebbs and flows through all that time, right? You've got struggles with, uh, crops, you have struggles with employees and financial and, um, and yet for us, uh, the Lord's provided, we, we've mm-hmm. survived. We've, we've gotten to a point where it's still a struggle and it will be for some time, but, um, we enjoy it. We enjoy the struggle. And yeah. How, how did that go that you moved what you were doing to Skagit County? Because yep. you used to be in Whatcom County, mm-hmm. one county north. Yeah. So we were on a 250 cow dairy in Whatcom County and land prices there were way too high. And there was kind of a movement to go to leasing facilities, buying the cows and leasing the ground around them. And it allowed you to have a more sustainable business, a larger business where you could capture some efficiencies on labor, some efficiencies on buying feed. And there was a place that came up for rent in Skagit County. And I recognized, hey, that, that's going to be more opportunity in that than there is in buying a smaller dairy in Whatcom County. Mm. Um, so convinced my dad that we should do it. And uh, yeah, he signed, signed the bank note and he agreed to support me in that. And yeah, went on my own down here in 2009, got married the same year Mm. and we've kept both of them going. So that's been good. (laughs) (laughs) So no, we came down here, we rented this place. And then in 2016, we went and rented another dairy. Mm. So we had two dairies. Um, And then, yeah, it felt like things were, 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 were heading a a tough direction. You know, we're seeing a lot of dairy farms go out of business. Um, We're at the end of the railroad for corn and soybeans. We have high feed costs, labor costs are way too high here on the side of the state. Um, our competitors in the Midwest are paying employees less, so their labor costs are a lot lower. And in my mind, looking around, Tillamook paid their farmers and allowed farmers to be a smaller size and and make money. And yeah, I after much prayer and talking about it, we decided that, hey, it, it, for us to sustain and keep going, we needed to look outside of, of Dairy Gold and outside of Washington. And uh, we decided to buy the dairy down in Tillamook um, mm. or in Astoria. So, yeah. How's that been going? That's that's a heck of a commute. It is. Yeah. No, How it's, often do you go down there? I do one trip a week. So mm. I do one trip a week and then do it one overnight. Mm. And, yeah, it's it's gone well. It's, it's not always... Um, easy being that far away, but a lot of communication to key employees down there helps. Um, and, and you have to learn to trust people and, and allow people to do their job and give them space to do it and then provide encouragement and also instruction when things aren't the way they should be. Um, but no, it's, it's gone well being down there. What, what's the difference between doing business and farming in Washington versus Oregon now? 
Certainly the environmental is easier down in Oregon. They have a CAFO permit down there, which everybody's required to get that has not been pierced. And there has, to my knowledge, has not been any farms that have been sued out of business um, based on any manure indiscretions. Um, And yet in Washington, there has been. There's been environmental lawyers going after many farms in Washington and pushed several out of business. And that has not happened down there. Um, so but do you think dairies in Washington are more protective of the environment because of that? or uh, Not necessarily. No, no. I think the people down there care, care immensely. Um, and yet they have the confidence that, hey, not only are we doing a good job, we're recording it, and uh, this program is keeping us accountable. Um, we're also not under this threat every day of being sued out of business and having everything we work for um, go down the drain to some corporate lawyer that's just looking to uh, take everything we own and everything we worked for. So that's the the situation in Washington. It it would it would appear to be that way. Yeah. yeah. And why? That's because of how state regulation of dairy farming is structured. Um, I believe there has not been a large acceptance of the CAFO permit in Washington State because it is incredibly onerous and because of the setbacks that it requires and some of the times where you're allowed and not allowed to apply the nutrients to the soil. Um, So very few people have signed up for it. Um, There have also, you might be able to speak to it better than me, but there have been instances where people thought that they were protected or they were working with government agencies and these government agencies essentially took all the data they had and just turned around and gave it to corporate uh, lawyers that then sued them into oblivion. And so there's this massive distrust of government agencies because they haven't had our back when they've said they have our back. And And it should be ultimately about protecting the environment, Mm -hmm. not about the gamesmanship of who wins or who loses in a courtroom. Certainly. Whoop-dee-doo. But the point, the the spirit of the law is... We can protect protect our streams and That's protect right. our soil and and the ecosystems and all that. So, how are we going to accomplish that? And it sounds like, in some ways, just to totally dumb it down, for lack of a better term, here in Washington, it's like they've overshot. Like they're they're pushing too hard. They're asking for too much. It's too difficult. Yeah. And that's, that's right. where the perfect becomes the enemy of the good, as that's I often right. say. And then, then you have fewer people actually proactively engaged in the process of doing the things mm-hmm. that they need to do because, mm-hmm. yeah. <clears throat> there's an interesting concept actually in tax law, and there's an allegory to this in that something called the Laffer Curve, mm. where <clears throat> you can, the government can go and implement a 90%, 100% tax on its people, but they will collect zero money because nobody will pay taxes. Right. And there's a happy medium in there somewhere where somebody's like, okay, I'm willing to give up 28.5%. Right. But as soon as it hits 70%, I'm just not going to pay my taxes. And you can have that in dairy farming too. When you push the dairy farmer away from the table and you say, we're going to make life so miserable, you can't even be in business that you get zero buy-in. And, and that's a dangerous place to be too. And, and you want to have all sides at the table. Right. And, and that means not having a, a governor going out and saying that, hey, we're going to uh, 
take all the flood floodwater areas and plant trees and commandeer all this land and make it uh, for the state, you know, riparian buffers. Yeah. I mean, farmers don't get consulted. Farmers are not at the table and there is no desire to even have a discussion with farmers. And to me, that environment is an environment that's doesn't have your best interest or or the environment's best interest in their heart it's all about greed it's all about power it's Mm. about control and it's about pushing farmers away from the table and to me that's an incredibly sad and dangerous state of affairs and i think salmon has become a political football i think uh, water has become a political football and i mean we live in an area with 60 80 inches of rain of year a a year of rain right and why we're having these water fights is is staggering is shocking you know and yet if you follow the money you get the answer rather quickly right and Mm. uh, who has the money and who's benefiting from these fights yeah oh with water i mean it we're unlike many many other places that have water fights because we here in northwest washington have enough water it just comes down to who gets it how is it managed is it being managed responsibly sustainably and equitably mm-hmm. and that's what the fights are over which in other areas like down the klamath they say it's crazy why are you guys fighting just right. figure it out you have enough just figure it out yeah so no, we live in a beautiful place. We've got a lot of amazing people here. We're all just trying to work together. And um, it would be nice to be included in the discussion when we have a lot invested in the land around here, in the facilities around here, and in the interest of the soil providing for us, our families, and future generations. And we just want to be at the table, and quite frankly, a lot of times we're not invited to the table. Yeah, well, here in Western Washington, there's only so much soil to farm, mm-hmm. and most of it, if it's being farmed right now, that's right. So if you trash your farm, trash your soil, right? What are you going to have in 50 years? That's right. What are your kids going to have? Yeah. Well, I mean, eventually it just gets paved over, right? And that's unfortunate, but but that you know, that is the alternative. Um, yeah. Um, un- unless you decide that you make it all a sanctuary and you just plant trees and have massive buffers, and um, I've gotten into the numbers on that though. Oh, if you do that, tell me more. If you do that, and the, and the American Farmland Trust has data on this. If you no longer farm land profitably, it can be as much as 70 times more likely to be developed. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No matter what the intent is in the long run, Mm -hmm. that ground is a sitting duck for pavement Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. somebody somewhere with money or clout or both, right? He's going to work it so they can put some pavement on there and make some money on that land. That's right. Yeah. Versus it being farmed at least in a way that maybe sometimes pays the bills, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Uh that staves that off. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. No, and and you can keep going down the rabbit hole, right? But if we want to take climate change seriously, we want local food. We we want our potatoes to come from Skagit County. We want our milk to come from Skagit County. We want our Brussels sprouts to come from Skagit County, right? We don't want it to be trucked in from Pennsylvania. Um, flown in from who knows where. Right. Central America. Shipped. Yeah, so, yeah. Right. Exactly. And... So part of that cohesive relationship is having local food. And 
uh, part of local food is having farms in your backyard. And that's not something that people want. And, and you can't have it both ways. Um, and, and at the end of the day, the good news about something that's unsustainable is it won't sustain, sustain itself, right? Um, I just hate for us to at one point realize that the vast majority of our food is coming from other countries, and then we wake up one day and we realize that food is a national security issue and we don't have the ability now to grow some of these foods that we've wanted in the past. And um, that, that is a fear. And I think COVID actually showed us that. And, yeah. and we're seeing that continually as we have supply chain issues and, um, and, and a lot of these uh, outside of even the ag world uh, you know, computer chips coming back to to the states, right? A lot of these industries that we historically pushed out to other countries are now coming back because we realize that if we don't have them, hmm. we're in a hurt, hurting, we're in a hurting unit. I mean, we got yeah. we got we got a problem. Um, so, so I, I I'm excited to see that where people maybe COVID gave us the wake up call to say, hey, if if we want these things, if we want to go to a grocery store and have all of these things produced in our backyard at the, the lowest carbon footprint possible. Yeah. We need to get behind local agriculture and we need to support it. So you are, let's say pretty, what's the right word? Prolific on uh, particularly Twitter with your posting and humor generally is kind of your thing. Yes. How did that get started? How did that get started? I had a tweet in 2014 or 15 and it just blew up and it just went crazy. How and long had you been on Twitter before then? Oh, I like not long at all. So I had just gone on just kind of the quiet stalker type. And then, <laughs> <laughs> and then I had posted Which is something. most people. Well, it is the vast majority, certainly. Yeah. Right. And then, well, and it's a little weird Twitter. You're like, you know, shouting something out into the ether, right? Like who, who is seeing it? What's, I mean, it's such an odd concept and, and that blew up, right? And then on the back end, you look and it was like, man, you know, 50,000 people saw this. This is crazy. Like what a medium, right? What a megaphone to get out. And Mm -hmm. so it was always something that I like to have fun with and, you know, put out something silly, put out something funny, um, use humor to kind of get my narrative, my message across, um, and, and then, uh, I saw the Netflix show, uh, social dilemma mm. and it was a little bit scary, uh, mm. going through that right where, yeah. uh, when the product is free, then you are the product mm-hmm. and all of this social media is designed to be addictive and suck people in and, and kill time and waste time. And so I've had a little bit of an awakening through that where it's like, man, you know, what, how healthy is this? Right. And there's certainly, yeah. Uh, and the social media experiment is new, right? We don't know what yeah. the impact is. We're just yeah. getting started on this and we'll see where it all goes. But uh, I took pause after that a little bit, but it's been a, a fantastic medium to to meet amazing people. I've enjoyed that part of it where you meet people on Twitter in particular. It's hard to hide crazy on Twitter <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe that's the right place for it. I don't know. But, but if you continually follow someone on Twitter, you kind of get a feel for their thought process, no different than podcasting. Right. And so there's a little bit of a connection where you feel like, you know, someone have you exposed your crazy uh, I, I as often brought, as <laughs> brought it out of you. Yeah, that's right. As often <laughs> as possible, as often as possible. Right. And yeah, so it, it's fun to, yeah, just put yourself out there and, um, yeah, it's a great way to get messaging across. 
if you're on there, how are you coming up with? Because you're like the king of the one-liner. Oh goodness! At least in ag Twitter, right? I will say, yeah. Um, and how many followers do you have there, by the way? It's, it's like, like forty-three thousand, I think. Yeah. So. so it's a lot of people. But like Elon says, they're like eighty percent bots. Well, whatever the true number <laughs> is, there's a lot of people paying attention, regardless. Right. Right. Um, but how do you come up with stuff? How do you compose that tweet? Have you always considered yourself a humorist? Um, a little bit, but to me, so much of Twitter, and I, I, I love the English English language. My mm. mother, my mother was an English teacher, mm. and there's something about Twitter where it forces you to synthesize a thought into a small package, and you want to have like a mic drop moment when you're composing a tweet, where all of a sudden people are like, "Boy, I didn't think it was going to go there," mm-hmm. and then it went there. Right. And that is fun where you go and you take something innocuous and you say, well, how can I make this funny or how can I turn this around or surprise people? Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's not easy for everyone to, to do that or come up with that. And I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed that part of it. And what comes figuring- first, the chicken or the egg? Like, is it like right. you, you're working around the farm doing right. stuff and all of a sudden something pops in your mind like. That's kind of ludicrous. What if yes. I wrote it this way and it would point out how ridiculous it is and people would laugh? That's versus like, okay, I'm going to write something funny. What's funny? Hmm. Right. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's 50 50 because I'll have it where I'm sitting drinking my coffee and just staring at the wall. And my wife's like, you're trying to come up with a tweet, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, uh, I am. Yeah. I am. I am. Now the truth yeah. comes out. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but then it's just like your daily life. There's so many things in it where you're like, oh, that's kind of silly or that's kind of funny. You know, and I've actually had that thought pre-Twitter where you have a thought and you're like, boy, that's kind of funny. I, I wish I could share that with a whole bunch of people because, you know, yeah. it's a crazy yeah. thought. Well, social media has allowed people to do that yeah. and put that out there. And I mean, I'll write and rewrite something a couple of times and then try and put the words in different places. I mean, all of that does make a difference on, yeah. on and it's no different we'll than blame a comedian. Your, we'll blame your English teacher mom yeah, for the right. rewording. <laughs> the rewording, exactly right. Do, do you diagram ones. that? Right, sentence? yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, but I mean, uh, comedians will talk about yeah. it too, where they'll write a joke out and then they'll rewrite it and go and put yeah. different words in different places. And it's just interesting, you know, how a sentence or a word will get a reaction from a crowd mm-hmm. when a comedian does it, right? And so trying to tap into that. And um, so, no, that, uh, that, that it's always been fun to do that. You ever thought about doing stand-up? I did it briefly just for fun. I love public speaking. So I love mm-hmm. the stage. Um, See, the, that's what most people hate, including me. Really? And okay. I have been around media and particularly on the radio or now on this podcast for years. Right. But that to me, that's easy because I'm either talking to myself right. when I do monologues, which yes. is really bizarre if you think about it, oh, or yeah. talking with like one other person, maybe yes. two or three, yep. but usually one other person. Mm-hmm. Easy. Get up in front of people, all yeah. those eyes staring at you. I can't yeah. handle it. I think really? it's my, I think partly it's my ADD because <laughs> that could be, that could be, I mean, I'm not, not that I'm officially diagnosed, but I'm right. either ADD or ADHD or something. Cause I just, yeah. I'm like squirrel, 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 squirrel. <laughs> what, what was I saying? Uh-huh. <laughs> All uh-huh. these people are looking at me. Right. Right. That one guy over there looks really funny and I can't stop <laughs> thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it there to me, it's like riding a wave. It's like surfing, right? Mm. And the ups and the downs. And when you're in front of an audience and you say something funny and you get that reaction, I mean, it's yeah. like an endorphin rush, a serotonin hit like no other. Mm. Um, 
And so the comedian side, I, I, I did it a little bit, but it can be a seedy, weird place. And mm. as a married guy with three daughters, like staying out till one or two in the morning mm. and in clubs. And I mean, that's a pretty long, tough road to do that. Yeah. And if you want to really make a name for yourself. It, right. Yeah. If you want to make it right. And for me, it was always just about, hey, I'd like to get more comfortable telling jokes while I'm giving a talk. And I love giving talks. Um, yeah, there's something about being in front of people that's just invigorating mm-hmm. and you, yeah, you go home and you're just riding this buzz for like two, three days after. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, that, that part's been fun. And actually Twitter's allowed me to do that where yeah. people go and say, Hey, can we have you at our, out at our thing at our event? And so it, uh, who knows where it goes. I'm not going crazy with it just cause I'm gone so much already with the being gone from the family. But, uh, yeah, yeah no, it is fun to do a few a year and kind of develop those skills and build those muscles. So back to your family. Yes. I know oftentimes people say, well, I'm not going to push my kids to do one thing or another. They can choose to do what they want to do based on their interests and their gifts. But so, so I'm going to step past that and yes. say, okay, I'm, I'm assuming that's probably what you think about your daughters as well. Or, or, or are you going to force them to become dairy farmers? Uh, like no choice. Shove it down their throats. <laughs> shove it down their throats. This is what you're doing. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'm taking that as a given. Yes. But what's your prediction? Oh, oh. Will any of them? Oh. continue oh do you see any like do they get out on the farm and, and work with the cows or anything at all right um uh my oldest daughter uh layla she loves animals and so she's expressed she wants to be a vet or vet tech and mm. she absolutely loves that she's got a heart for it um so i think her gift and calling would be in in veterinarian um middle daughter loves teaching teaches all her sisters teaches <laughs> the chickens she holds classes <laughs> for the chickens uh, for the chickens what yeah does she, she teach the chickens uh, she reads to them she oh, reads yeah. books to the chickens has you got any, any talking chickens yet and no, yeah. i'm hoping because uh, daddy wants to retire so if, if you <laughs> could expedite that if you could expedite the talking chicken well business. that's on your daughter right right yeah. yeah so she has a heart for teaching i could see her doing that and then my youngest um uh, yeah, she's, uh, verbose, wild, crazy. Um, I, I could, I think she might have the ability to do it. Um, it, it's interesting because oftentimes parents that are business owners don't want their kids to be business owners themselves because yeah. they know the hours, they know the struggles, they know the yeah. turmoil and they actually push their kids into being doctors, dentists, working at the something post office, safe. something safe, right? Yeah. Exactly. And, uh, and yet to me, life is about struggle. There's joy in struggle. There's joy in, in that. And so I, yeah, I would allow them to do it. But if I had a, if I had a guess, I think my youngest has the probably tenacity to, to be a business owner and to, to run a farm or run a dairy. That's an outstanding point about playing it safe. I, I think it really comes down to the person. Like yes. Some people are meant to play it safe. They Certainly. can't handle. Certainly. And I'd pro- I used to not. Right. M- more and more, I'd probably put myself into that category. Like yes. there is, I deal with stress somewhat, mm-hmm. but there's only so much I can handle. Like right. my mental health will only take me so far. And right. I have to be honest with that. I can't just do it. That, you yeah. know, I couldn't do what you do. No, no, no. I keep all those plates spinning. I would mm-hmm. lose it. Right. But other people, they need that. That's right. And yes. if you're too safe, you're dying because you're just oh, unstimulated. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And 
I have a little bit of ADHD myself, undiagnosed, but I mean, yeah. I need chaos. Yeah. I, I need a million things going on. I need a bunch of things going wrong. And right? then you have that at a dairy farm. That's right. And you have that, Period. right? You yeah. do, right? And it takes a certain person to put yourself through that, right? And I mean, we go and create a budget for the year. We've never had a budget that was, you know, within $500,000 of the January 1 budget. Well, how do you operate, you know, under those circumstances, right? With that much uncertainty in your business, how do you operate, right? How do you function? Um, and I, I would venture that a lot of business people are a little bit crazy anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, they're they're the rookie basketball team that doesn't know they yeah. shouldn't win, right? You could because, win big or you could lose right? really big. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. There's challenges, right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so there there's a little bit of insanity, I think, in – all business owners, but all dairy farmers too, yeah. just because of the challenges. But yeah, with, with challenge come or with challenge and struggle comes meaning, and and it doesn't, and that struggle doesn't have to be on the scale that I have or that somebody else has. But I think if we can look at struggle and say that hey, this is meaning in life for us, and this is our cross to bear, and we've accomplished something at the end of the day, mm. then that can provide joy in life. Well, thanks for having me out here to the farm. Yeah, thanks for coming and, out. Yeah, sharing your depth of knowledge. I, you know, I like it that you geek out about some of the, like the history of it and the nutrition and all that stuff. I, yeah, that's same as me. Uh, those are the oh, things yeah. going through my head. And you know, sometimes I talk to people and they resonate. And right, sometimes I talk to people and they're like, "You're crazy. Why do you think about all that stuff?" I just live my life. I'm like, I can't live my life without thinking right. about that kind of stuff. Right. And what is going to happen? What, what is the trajectory of humanity and yes. food and energy and yeah, there's some of those macro things are just, and we're we're going through some crazy times right now, and it's going to be interesting to see where it all goes. So, well, I appreciate it, and I appreciate your story too. Thank you, appreciate it, Dylan. Thank you. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. <laughs>